Welcome to the Nonprofit Hero Factory, a weekly live video broadcast and podcast where we'll be helping nonprofit leaders and innovators create more heroes for their cause and a better world for all of us. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 13 of the Nonprofit Hero Factory. Today, we're going to be talking with Lisa Greer about thinking like a donor to build authentic relationships. And um, Lisa is the, sorry, my dog is barking in the background. Uh, Lisa is a philanthropist. She's an entrepreneur. She's a convener, a nonprofit advisor, and the author of a new book, The Philanthropy Revolution, which is currently actually the number one new release in philanthropy and charity on Amazon right now. And so far, only the Kindle version is available. The hardcover is coming out, I think, maybe even this week or within the next uh, few days. We'll ask her about that. Um, she is a former Hollywood executive who has been an active board member serving on boards, including New Israel Fund, Cedar sinai Hospital, Make-A-Wish, Girl Scouts, and many others. She's also the mother of five, and she and her husband, Josh, live in Beverly Hills. Coincidentally, I had been to Lisa's house in my former life living out in Los Angeles uh, for an event where I was a photographer. <laughs> we dis- discovered that as we were talking earlier. They've hosted nearly 200 charitable salons and events there, bringing nonprofit stories to donors and influencers in LA, which is part of the perspective that she brings to this uh, conversation and to the book that she wrote. She describes her superpower as helping nonprofits understand and relate to donors with integrity, authenticity, and honesty. I'm excited to talk to her today about what that means, why it's important, and how nonprofits can incorporate it into their strategies. So with that, let's bring Lisa on to the show. Hi, thanks, Lisa. How are you? Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm great. I'm very excited to have you on. Congratulations on the already uh, successful pre-launch of your book. Thank you. Um, I I see it's getting traction on Amazon. I see you've got a quote from uh, Seth Godin, one of my idols, right there on the front cover. You must know something about what you're talking about. You must be doing something right. So tell me and tell all of us a little bit about your story, your background, and um, why you're doing, why you're publishing this book and doing what you're doing. Right. Uh, So I have not been a lifelong uh, philanthropist. I was, uh, I've given wherever I could, but we didn't really have money until about nine, 10 years ago when we were um, uh, lucky enough, I guess, and and blessed enough to be able to uh, have my husband's company go public and I sold my company, we're serial entrepreneurs, and uh, we found ourselves in a position with um, becoming one percenters, I guess. I'm, hopefully that's not the bad version. But uh, And we, the first thing that we thought about, and we thought it was natural to think about, was where are we going to give our money and, and, and how do we become philanthropists and what's the right way to do this? Uh, and what we found, we both come from business, uh, from lots of different companies, corporate, uh, uh, small business, et cetera. Uh, and what we found is that... Um, there were a lot of just basic business tenets that didn't exist in philanthropy and fundraising. And we just were shocked about that. It just didn't seem as, in some ways it was very professional, but in some ways it was, it was uh, there was a lot of sort of, are you kidding? Like, are you really doing it that way? And, um, and then there was a lot of just generally arcane strategy and, and uh, methodology. So uh, we did continue to give uh, and we didn't, we weren't daunted. Some people might've been daunted and just put their money into a donor advice fund, but we decided that we would push through. And uh, and after a while, I realized that 
there were a lot of these problems and that nobody was really there fixing them. And one of the reasons they weren't fixing them is because they really didn't know what the donors thought because the donors didn't want to talk about it. So we decided, or I decided to be that person. That's a great story. Congratulations on your success, both yours and your husband's. And uh, thank you for deciding uh, to, to focus so much of your energies on helping the nonprofit sector, seeing that there are issues. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing. I do have a for-profit background, a marketing background. And when I started working with nonprofits, I started seeing the huge disparity between how the worlds operate and seeing how nonprofits aren't uh, always taking advantage of the latest tools and best practices that are out there. I feel like you're doing something similar now for philanthropy. That's right. We're, we're doing, I think, exactly that. Um, and then more specifically, I'm trying to change how philanthropy is taught. Uh, and I, I was a guest speaker at, at a number of different, couple different, different schools where they taught nonprofit management and specifically fundraising and philanthropy. Uh, and, and I felt like there was a, a real thirst on the part of the students to be able to uh, hear kind of contemporary versions of how you might do this better. And that, from me, but I just felt like they weren't getting it in their classes. So what I'm really trying to do is is change the way philanthropy is taught. So what is the problem then? What's the problem with philanthropy, the way it's taught, the way it's being practiced? What are you, what are you trying to fix? So the biggest problem is that, uh, and, and there's, there's a whole lot of problems, but I think it all stems from one very important piece, which is that the, the fundraisers don't think of the donors as, in my opinion, human beings. Uh, they think of them as some different type of alien creature. And I was sort of the alien among the aliens. So, so if a donor is an alien creature, somebody who just all of a sudden got money when they were older is, is a super alien creature. So uh, I can't quite figure out where that started. There's a lot of different, I have a, I have a lot of different theories. A lot of people in my book who, um, who you can read about have their theories. But for some reason, uh, there's, there's just, it, it, it's sort of like, well, you are a different kind of person. So if I feel like I get annoyed by XYZ subject line, then the person on the other end, oh, no, they're different. They're not going to see the subject line the same way. That's something as simple as a subject line in an email. And it, it, it's amazing how many conversations I've had with fundraisers where I've said, just look at what you're sending out and think of it as being sent to you. And how would you feel? Would you open that email if it had that subject line? And they, they think that's a really strange question. They kind of look at me and say, well, I don't understand, but these are donors. So, but they're, you know, it's sort of, as I said it to someone the other day, it's sort of like in, what is it, People Magazine, and they say, you know, celebrities, they're just like you. It's donors, they're just like you. And, and sure, there might be some quirky, unusual people in the group, as there are in any group. But in general, you need to look at it and say, how would I feel if I got this? How would I feel if I got a phone call saying, hi, this is so-and-so from a charity you don't know. Please call me back so I can ask you for money. I mean, really? I, okay, they didn't say they can ask you for money, but it was implied. And nobody would answer that phone call. So it, it's that is the, the most important piece. Uh, but because donors don't like to talk about it, uh, as as most, if not all of the donors I've talked to have said, when I when I ask them, why wouldn't you just say to the fundraiser that was really annoying or it was off putting or it was demeaning the way you talk to me, uh, you know, just talk to me like you were talking to a friend. Um, they, they just say, well, it's easier to hang up the phone. It's easier to just cancel the meeting and not give to that organization anymore. The, the downside of that, of course, is that the organization never knows what they did wrong. The fundraiser doesn't know what they did wrong. They keep doing it the same way, and the donor goes on, and, and life goes on the same way, and that's just not okay. So I 
realized that there was a problem uh, looming when a lot of these, well, I'll get to it in a little bit, Boris. You, you know my, my thing about the older people who are, who are not going to be here and, and not talking to millennials, but, but this is another big piece of my book, is that, is that we really need to talk to people as human beings, and if they are millennials, if they are older people, if they are infirm people, if they are celebrity, whatever they are, you need to talk to them as a human being and get to know them as a person, and that will help your fundraising a whole lot. So donors are people, too. Donors are people, too. <laughs> um, I think that's uh, absolutely valid and, and critical. Uh, a lot of nonprofits are, I, I think, starting to incorporate some of what you're talking about, and they're starting to understand that you need to con make a connection person to person, not just talk about, oh, our cause is this and our cause is that, and we're doing such great work, but more about, you know, we are a group of people that have a similar philosophy to you. We care about similar things that you care about and really relate to them as human to human on a subject that both are passionate about. Right, right, right. And the funny part is that, that almost every nonprofit you can think of and every fundraiser uses the word relationship. And I don't know, they must have a different dictionary definition of relationship, because how can you have a relationship with somebody if you don't have any sense of who they are or how they feel? Uh, really, what the way that I've, I, I sort of see it is that I, I think that most fundraisers would really prefer, and, and this is not all of them, I've, the, the boards that I'm part of and the groups that I work with are the ones that are different, but, but the vast majority, I think, of, of nonprofits and fundraisers, um, I think that if you really ask them, they'd say that they prefer that a donor was just like a piggy bank. And the reason why I'm using a piggy bank metaphor is a piggy bank is an inanimate object and doesn't talk back. And I think they really like that. And the idea is, is that you just find the piggy bank, you find the right piggy bank and you smash it and you take the money and you run. And, you know, I don't know about dictionary terms, but that is not a relationship. Yeah. So I would say, you know, there are lots of different kinds of relationships out there. And I would say I do know, uh, like you, many development directors and people in fundraising and, and nonprofit communications that they are trying to treat people like people and talk to them. But there is sort of this invisible divide between, well, I'm not one of them. They're not like me. And so how do I really relate to them versus trying to think, well, this is what a donor might might like and not necessarily actually talking to them and, and knowing what they would like. So what should they be doing in terms of bridging that divide? How do you how do you get inside a donor's mind besides perhaps reading your book? Thank you. Well, yes, if you read the book, there's a lot of uh, about 40 different people, uh, academics, fundraisers, donors, who actually we got to talk about how they feel. And so as well as my story. And uh, and I think and it also gives a lot of practical information. So there's a part in every chapter of one or two sections where it says, instead of doing this, why don't you think about doing this or instead of doing that? And when when people read it, uh, our initial readers read it, they say, oh, gosh, that's so obvious. I didn't think of that. So I think that the academic piece got in the way of the obvious. And uh, and we need to go back to just sort of just sort of human nature. So uh, I, I think one of the most important things really has to do with what you do, Boris, which is uh, storytelling. And everybody has a story. And if you can find out your donor's story or stories, all of a sudden the relationship appears. And if you can also be be a little bit more transparent and human yourself as a fundraiser, and you can tell some of your stories, how did you get into this? Why did you get into this? That's really great. And all of a sudden the relationship, I think, will develop on its own if you can do that. And so I'm teaching, uh, I'm working with organizations now and I'm teaching them the storytelling formulas and how to extract these formulas, both from their own staff, but also from donors and other constituents where 
you really ask a series of questions, essentially. Uh, ideally, it'd be great to have these conversations in person, but however you can have them, including even like online, you know, uh, having having just a question and answer thing. And um, here's a question for you as a donor. How do you feel about being asked for more information? Do you feel like, well, I'm already giving you my money. Do I also need to give you my time? Or do you feel like, oh, this organization really wants more from me in terms of my my self, my person, rather than yes. just my money? Yes, that. And and there are organizations that I, I believe that most people, most younger people, most younger donors, which in this case is people, anybody under 70 or 80, uh, but they, they really do want to give more of themselves to the organization. They don't want to be just a checkbook. I hate to say just a checkbook because most people don't write checks anymore, but, but we, you understand what that, that idea is. And, and so the more that they, uh, they really get to know each other and the more you might find out from that donor that they happen to have a, a you know, special power. They might have something that they, uh, they do that you didn't even know about as a fundraiser that could really help you. Um, the problem that, that ha comes up and that's come up for me and it's, it's really, really disturbing is that there are a lot of organizations that don't want to use that part of their donors. They just want their donors for their money and they want to keep that very separate from donors volunteering. And most, uh, it, it's funny because volunteers, uh, all the research shows that volunteers for most organizations, lot, especially longer term volunteers, they are the most devoted to that cause. I mean, absolutely devoted. And if they get a little bit of money, by the way, they're the ones that put the money away and all of a sudden you get a bequest years later and you say, gosh, I didn't know that person. They weren't one of our donors. They were just a volunteer. I, I don't know why people don't spend more time with volunteers. It's, it's because, well, I know why. It's because they don't have money now. And that's really a very short-sighted way of, way of thinking. Uh, but the other part is that if you are a, let's say you're, you're an accountant and you can help with the accounting for the organization, there are some organizations that just say, no, 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 we want to keep that very separate. We want to keep our volunteers in a box. We want to keep our donors in a box. And we want to keep our professionals in a box. And those boxes never meet. And uh, especially in this day and age when, when resources sometimes are, are a little bit challenging, you, you might want to take that step and actually use them. It doesn't mean you have to. Some people will say, well, what if that accountant isn't a good accountant and then I have to use them and then I'm committed? Again, go back to their people too. If you're not the right fit, just say, it's not the right fit. We've got somebody else and we really love this. Or could you take a look at this and tell us what you think about this that our accountant provided? And if you don't want to use the information, fine, but at least you asked. And by asking, it's going to make that donor feel much more engaged. It's, it's interesting that you, you talk about uh, volunteers eventually uh, giving a, a large amount of money, perhaps, or bequeathing a large amount. Uh, I actually know of stories where that has happened. Um, but it completely makes sense because psychologically, uh, there is a phenomenon where the more you invest of yourself or invest in, in various ways into a relationship, the more invested you are in it, right? So with every session that a volunteer is volunteering, with everything that they do, they actually put more of themselves into your mission and your organization. So they are reinforcing their own connection to it with each session. Right. And, and, and ignore, I, I guess I would say ignore that at your peril if I'm talking to talking to fundraisers like we are today, because that's just, it's, it, but that again is relationship. And that is, you're allowing it to cross those lines into the different areas. And as opposed to just say, donor check box, see you, buy, thank you note, you know, that kind of thing. And there's gotta be ways to track this kind of data, if you will, where once you ask someone once or twice, or you ask, are you interested in these types of opportunities? If they are, great. If not, a little check mark goes into their CRM 
uh, entry and you don't bother them with that kind of stuff anymore. You periodically tell them about what's happening, let them opt back into it if they want, but you don't need to feel like you're bothering people who aren't interested if you just really pay attention to what their responses are to what you're doing. Right. So let me give you a couple of uh, examples of, of that or ways to be uh, cautionary areas. So uh, yes, ask them what the difference, different things are that they're interested in and actually act on them. So don't ask somebody how, my, one of my biggest things that I tell everybody, and, and, and really this comes from my sales background, and it, so it's not just philanthropy, but any, any kind of sales or anything where you want to be persuasive. In this day and age, ask somebody how they like to be communicated with. Um, how often would you like to get updates from us? Ask them that information. And then, but then if you ask them the information or you say, how would you like to be involved? And then you ignore them, then it's worse than having not asked at all. Absolutely. Because then they feel like, well, I thought there was going to be an opportunity and there's so, almost a, a rejection there, right? Well, I said, I want to do this and now you're not letting me do it and you're not giving it to me, right? So it definitely creates the, the opposite reaction. Right, right, right. And, and to assume that a donor is going to get upset if you don't use them, uh, I, I think, again, back to, back to the beginning, uh, if you realize they're a human. If you have a friend and you say to the friend, hi, can you help me on this? And the friend, you realize, mm, didn't really do everything I needed. I need to now get another consultant. You still have the friend. You talk to the friend and you say, you know what? It wasn't quite what I was looking for. I need to find somebody else. Thank you so much for your help. For some reason, most organizations don't want to do that with their donors. They don't want to. I think the, a big piece of it is they don't want to take the risk that the donor is going to get upset. And um, I, I don't know how you have a relationship without risk. So it's just part of the same deal. So let's talk a little bit about um, bu building these relationships and specifically with younger generations than, than the average uh, donor these days. Um, I know and research has, has shown, there's several studies that show that millennials are most interested in organizations with uh, some sort of a mission alignment to, to themselves. Uh, they wanna be involved, they wanna feel connected and part of that community. That is a perhaps psychologically anyway, uh, a big change from the donors of the past where they were just these, you know, uh, uh, omnipowerful, uh, you know, givers that would just, you know, let you do the work that you want to do and maybe advise you along the way. Now, younger generations are more interested in being part of it from the ground up and having their hands in it, if you will, right? Right. And so there's a whole gamut of, uh, of, of younger people, of course, and everybody, again, they're regular people, so there's all different types of them. But uh, yes, if somebody wants to get involved, if somebody, it is much, much more common for a, a contemporary donor to say, I, I really wanna get behind the curtain. I really wanna know what's going on with your organization. And if you tell me everything is perfect, I am not an idiot and I know that that's not possible. It's just not, it's not it can't be real. And therefore I'm not gonna trust you. And trust is the number one problem um, in fundraising period. Every research study you can find talks about, talks about trust being this, this uh, uh, kind of attribute that, that, that there just isn't enough of. And so uh, because of that, there's lots and lots of people who just don't, don't donate at all, which is, is really um, an unfortunate thing and I'm trying to change that. Uh, but, but you need to, you need to actually say, uh, if you say, I want to know what's going on with your organization, I'd like to see whatever. I want to see your budget. I want to see the impact report. And I, I will be able to see because most donors, as in most people, are intelligent humans. And they can see if you're giving them something that has been uh, cut into nothing because it, it, it's just going to be, you know, pablum because it, it, it's, you don't want them to know any of the bad stuff or you don't want them to know any of the detail. And so I, as a donor, if I say, look, I really want to know, and maybe it won't be numbers. Maybe it's just, 
gee, I want to know your work with kids in Africa. I would like to know what's it like when you go talk to the kids in Africa. Just tell me. You know, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. That will, uh, it will, will elicit trust. And if you just say everything's great, they're wonderful, they love everything, then I'm going to know I need to go to a different organization. So it's really important to give, give that information that they're looking for. And you can give it in a responsible way. Uh, one of the things is, that's a really good idea is to just ask the donor, what, what part of that are you interested in? And like, why are you asking? And in a very nice way, in a very respectful way, that is that something that you're interested in? Like, what do you like to see? Are you looking at this because you want to know what percentage are administrative costs? Or are you looking at it because you want to see what our impact is? And what you might find out, and what I've heard from a lot of donors, including some that are in, in the book, um, a lot of younger donors, they actually want to be much more hands-off than anyone's, anyone would assume. They want to believe, they want to do all the research up front. They want to make sure that this is the organization so that the older people didn't really do. So they really want to look behind the curtain. But then once they're convinced that the organization is something that they trust, they will very often say, I'm giving you money for 10 years and I'm hands off, which is a really different kind of thing than what we've been used to. For sure. Yeah. Trust is built through empathy and vulnerability. So if your donor can't empathize with you and vice versa, and if you can't be vulnerable with them, then why should they trust you? And you are just this inanimate almost object, right? Because anything alive has has challenges and has problems and is vulnerable. So uh, that's incredibly important for any kind of communications and, and relationship building is to have that kind of vulnerability, which builds empathy, which builds trust. Right, right. You're, you also talk in the book uh, a lot about ways to be transparent from the outset. Is that also in the capacity of trust building? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is. I, look, at it, it's all in the capacity of, of trust, relationship, integrity, authenticity. All of it's in the same kind of basket. And, and that's what we're trying to get to. And again, it, it shouldn't be hard. That's how we work with our friends. That's how we interact with, in, in most cases, family members. That's how we, we interact with people that we respect. For some reason, this donor fundraiser relationship is different. And and uh, and we, uh, you know, some people say it's because fundraisers actually just don't like talking about money, which I think is is a very strange uh, and ironic kind of thing. But uh, but but we we just need to get past it. And the fundraisers need to be taught that donors are real people. They need to be taught that trust is the biggest issue and that it's okay to let down your hair. They will still like you. If your mission is an important mission, it's okay. They're going to like you. And if they like you and they feel comfortable with you and you can bring them to a point where, because they have a little bit of interest where they are super engaged with the mission, then they're going to give you money. And and they need to understand that as opposed to the way of thinking now, I think is, is if I you know, call them 500 times and I send them a whole bunch of emails and I tell them that we're desperate, they're going to give me money. Not, not, not a good thing. So those are completely different. Uh, so I think it's, um, and, and one of the really, really big opportunities, by the way, now is that um, because of COVID and because of where we are, there are people who are donating who have never donated before. People, and, and there's all sorts of research studies and people are well aware that I've talked to a lot of these people and they're out there saying, okay, I've taken the first baby step. I kind of like this. I feel like I'm helping people with a PPE or with helping you know, homeless people or getting lunches to kids who aren't in school. But then what do I do? And they are primed. And we now need to go and we go as fundraisers and organizations and go find those people and affect them and get to know them as humans. And I think that is going to reap all sorts of benefits uh, long-term. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but during times of hardship, everybody's empathy goes up. Everybody uh, can, can relate to someone else who's in trouble and wants to go out there and help. Um, but it does need to come from 
some sort of authentic need and authentic connection. Uh, you talk uh, just a minute ago about you know wanting every donor to like you. I think it's okay that not every donor does. Not every donor is your ideal donor. It's better to build a tribe, to use Seth Godin's uh, word, um, of people who actually love you, what you're doing, the way you're doing it, than trying to get as many people out there as possible that might potentially like something that about what you're doing and give you even a little bit of, of, of money to support it. So right. the more you can connect to the right people, and you know, in storytelling, I talk about avatars and target audience profiles, basically. But the, the more you can identify that person and what they believe in and what you have in common with them, the easier it's going to be to connect with the right people for the long term. Right, and there's and, and, and right, everybody doesn't need to be your friend, but they do have to share your passion. And we have some issues there, which I'll go into briefly. I go into more in the book, but but the most fundraisers stay at their job about eighteen months. So that is a bit of a problem. You kind of wonder, well, if they're only there 18 months, and in fact, a huge number of them, something like 50%, 40%, something like that, don't even want to be, continue to be fundraisers past the next year or two. So if that's the case, are they really passionate about the mission? And if they're not that passionate about the mission, because if they're staying 18 months, they're probably not passionate about the mission, especially if they go to different kinds of organizations. And if that's the case, then how can they convey passion about the mission to the donor if they don't really have the passion about the mission. So so you need to have the right people in the right place as well. But if you do, you will find that that a very large percentage of people actually want to donate. It's human nature to want to give and want to make other people happy and want to take care of the world. I just think most people believe that. But when you have when you have to go through this gauntlet of people treating you like you're an alien, it makes it very difficult to want to continue to donate. Absolutely. So um this is not an easy thing to flip. It's not like a switch. Someone can just say, okay, now our nonprofit does this. Um, or a lot of nonprofits might assume that they're already doing it. So what, where should they start? How, is there something they should start looking at and evaluating in order to create change? Right. So you know what my answer is going to be here. It's just look at the book and you can pick whatever chapter it has to do with what you're talking about. There's a board chapter. There's a gala chapter. There's whatever. Look at the problem that you have. Go to that chapter and it will actually say to you, we've spent three years working on this book and tons of research, and it will actually say to you, here's some research that shows some things that you can do to make that change. But what it boils down to, again, is what we talked about at the beginning. It's integrity and authenticity and trust and honesty and all of those things and treating the person like a human. And really, once you do that, the rest of it kind of starts falling into place. So with each email, with each uh, statement on your website, your blog posts, with each social media post, with each phone call, right? It's right. are you talking to someone like they are your friend who believes in what you're doing or... Uh, or are you talking to someone like they are a potential source of money? Do right. They don't even have to be your friend, just somebody you respect. I think it. I, I don't think it has to go as far as your friend. It's just somebody that you'd like to have a nice conversation with and know more about. But if you really don't want to know more about them and you pretend to want to know more about them, that never works. Uh, so I, I think it has to be an authentic conversation. And, um, for example, somebody called me the other day from one of my – she had seen one of my posts and uh, who works at a large university – and she said, I'm sending out this email. I'm now nervous that my emails are going to be condescending and they're not, they don't feel authentic. It was a very simple email blast. It had about, I don't know, two paragraphs in it and a subject line. She said, can you look at it and tell me if any of this is offensive or demeaning to a donor? And um, unfortunately, the answer was most of it was. And we, we took it apart. And when I said to her, 
look at the subject line. Let, just look at this. And here's one really easy thing that that that, that your watchers can um, uh, can 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 do. Uh, look at your email box in the morning. Think about all of the different emails that you have on your email box. Put the email that you're thinking of sending out with that subject line, just the email and the subject line. Put it in your email box and say, would I click on that? And for some people, they told me that was life-changing. So because if you're not going to click on it, and, and some people will say, well, it doesn't matter what I think, I'm not a donor. And that's where getting back to this thing of the, there are different kinds of people. But if you won't click on it yourself, how can you expect somebody else to do so? So put it, just put it in. You can even send an email to yourself with that subject line, have it sit in your email box for a day and look at it and say, is this something that is going to make me want to click on it? And is it going to feel, be compelling? And then if you graduate from that part, you can then go into whatever the body of the email is and say, is this something that I would actually respond to? And I think that's a really easy first step. Absolutely. That's a great kind of like quick litmus test. You know, we all get hundreds of emails a day these days. Is that subject line from this organization going to make you open that email or will it sit there? Will you go, oh, maybe I'll open it later or will you just delete because you've got too much else going on? Right. Right. One of one of my best examples is 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 that I I have all sorts of pet peeves, which you'll see in the book. But uh, but but when you see an email and it says uh, end of our quarter, we need to make our numbers. And I look at that and I think, well, what does that have to do with me? Like, why? Why? I'm sorry. If you didn't make your numbers, then maybe you didn't do something right a month or two ago, or maybe you didn't budget correctly. But that doesn't have to do with me. And so I'm going to not open that email. So, uh, so there's and and then there's there's some. In fact, I'll give everybody a big one of my big big tips that I'm doing right now. Something that you've accomplished during COVID uh, is a really big deal. People, uh, other some other people are suggesting this too. Say something that you accomplished during COVID. Or, or something or relate to COVID because otherwise you look like you are completely tone deaf if you don't even, and there are plenty of solicitations I've gotten that literally don't talk about COVID at all and don't talk about, oh, it's, we know it's been a difficult summer. They just go straight for give us money. And I think, what are you, like how, I, there is no relationship there. You guys are completely out to lunch and you think that I'm like living under a rock or something. So that's not okay. Uh, absolutely. And of course the message about COVID needs to be authentic. You can't just say something that's completely unrelated to your mission as suddenly being important. Although you can recognize that as all human beings, we're going through something right now and that you are a human talking to a human again. So that's absolutely valid and, and relevant. And when you said, you know, we didn't make our fourth quarter, we, we need help. That, that just sends off so many pet peeve alarm bells in my own mind too. You're absolutely right. It's not about what did the organization do or not do in terms of their, their funding? It's what's going on that I should want to help with. What So even if it's about a budget shortfall, which of course happens, and I think is going to happen a lot more next year, what is it that you're not being not able to do because of that? Talk to me about the, the people that I can help rather than your organization needs money. That's right. And, and that's why there's been a lot of big change with, uh, the attitudes towards operational or, or unrestricted giving versus giving for particular programs. Uh, I think both are important. I don't think it's one or the other. Uh, but um, some people, I, I, I got kind of a little bit attacked online the other day because um, I, I made some just generic comment and somebody just assumed that because I was a donor, I must be, oh, I was saying I wanted to, we were talking about thank you notes. And I think it's important to have some sort of, people need to say thank you. And there are people out there who think that it's inappropriate for 
fundraisers to say thank you because donors basically are, have money and so they don't deserve it and you shouldn't be pandering to rich people, therefore you shouldn't say thank you, which I think is just from another planet. I don't, I don't understand that. I think when you're four, you actually, I think it's, I read an article in like Parents Magazine. I think when you're 18 months old, you're taught to say thank you. So it's not okay when you're 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever. So you say thank you. Um, but, um, but this person immediately when I wrote that thought that what I meant was that for some reason I was a donor and I was saying, please say thank you. Therefore, I must be one of those people who's saying money that I donate should only go into programs and shouldn't go into administration costs, uh, uh, into operational uh, expenses or, or be unrestricted. And I didn't say that at all. I didn't even come close to saying that, but yet I was accused of being that person. And I think, again, both are important. I think, uh, I think the idea back to, back to looking at the other person as a human being, the idea that a donor is going to look at a fundraiser across the table or across Zoom and think, and, and think that that person works for free is ludicrous. It makes it seem like the donors are complete, that the fundraiser must really think, oh, donors are idiots if they are afraid to, if, if they're afraid to ask for operational money, if they're afraid to uh, make it clear that they're professional and they make money just like anyone else. And I, as a donor, I really don't want to sit across the table or across Zoom with somebody who's making $15 an hour, $5 an hour, because I, and nothing against those people, but I want to know that this is a professional who's done this for years and who's who really knows what they're talking about. And, and I know that that you have to pay people like that. That's just a general thing. If you want somebody, something quality, then you must pay them. And I don't think, I, I think pretty much any donor would, would know that. And the idea that fundraisers think that donors don't know that and it is crazy. Uh, they did a study and it's about 80% of fundraisers are uncomfortable. This was in the last year, uncomfortable asking for operational support. They just don't want to ask for it at all. Yeah, it's too bad. It's not a sexy ask, operational support, right? Well, it's not a sexy ask, but it's going to mean that the, especially, gosh, look at it now. It's If you have really great people running your organization, chances are good that you might have had some rainy day money in the bank and you might be okay and you might be able to get through COVID and you might be able to get through economic downturns because you have a really incredible group of devoted people who are really smart and have figured this stuff out. So it, it actually is protecting my money to know that you're making a decent wage. Yeah, and the better professional you are, the more you do deserve to be paid, and the better you're going to be at your job at bringing more money in. Is it Dan Pilata that has the TED Talk it about is. the subject? I, I blogged about it before. I am in 100% agreement. It, um, it's, it's about 10, 11 years old, but it still works, and uh, I, I send that to people all the time because it really gets your mind right about that. And I, I'm very pleased that uh, the there's, there's some movement in the last six months with different... Um, uh, organizations that rate charities to really look at them, not so much from this operational expense point of view, but from an impact point of view. Absolutely. Lisa, I feel like we could talk for, for another five days and, and still not cover nearly half of, of what we can talk about. Um, but I do want to be respectful of your time and our listeners' time. Um, in the show notes for this episode, which are already up online, uh, some of them will we'll have more up, obviously, once this is over. Uh, you uh, recommended several different tools and, and resources like Inside Philanthropy, Chronicle of Philanthropy, Candid, which I, I love and have worked with several times, Alliance Magazine and BoardSource. Um, anything that specifically organizational leaders should, should go to, besides going to buy your book, which we're also going to have links to in, in the show notes, anything that they should do when they're done watching this episode? Uh, well, I think looking at my blog would make a lot of sense because, and I, in fact, had a guest um, 
another donor, a philanthropist who, who did a guest column just a couple days ago. So it would be interesting to look at somebody else's point of view. Uh, but I've done them for about a year. There's maybe, I don't know, 40 or 50 of them. And they're on all different subjects. They're a quick read. It'll take you two or three minutes. And they're all, they all talk about, from a donor's point of view, things that you might do differently. Um, and I think just talk to donors. I think that's the most important thing. Go. It's almost like pick up the phone today and talk to a donor and say, how are you doing? That would be a wonderful thing. And that will get you on the right track. Actually, right now during COVID, that's a great practice because it shows that you care about them and you're actually interested because maybe some donors, especially if they're older and at a high risk in, in terms of COVID, right. you want them to know that you care about them and not just as a check, but also okay. as a human but one quick caveat and then we'll be done. But uh, but if you call somebody and you pick up the phone and you say, how are you doing and how are you hanging in there during COVID? And they seem to need help. By making that phone call, you are obligating yourself to actually help them. Because if you don't, then you might as well not make the phone call. Absolutely. Awesome. Lisa, thank you so much for, for joining me today and, and sharing all of this uh, per amazing perspective that, that I think is incredibly invaluable. Um, we have so much more that we can talk about and I'd love to have you back on the show sometime. Um, for those of you watching at home, I hope you got a lot of value out of this or listening later on. Um, if you did, please, please subscribe to us on YouTube, on any of your favorite podcast platforms and leave us a review so that more people can discover this show and people like Lisa talking about these really important subjects. Thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend. Thanks. Thank you all for watching and listening to the Nonprofit Hero Factory. We hope this episode has given you some ideas and strategies for creating more heroes for your cause and a better world for all of us. Please be sure to subscribe to this show on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And let us know what you think by leaving a review.